Welcome to Gospel and Life. Throughout the Bible, we see accounts of people who have had direct, extraordinary encounters with God. In today's sermon, Tim Keller is teaching through one of those extraordinary encounters, what happened and what it means for us today. After you listen, please take a few seconds to rate and review our podcast. Your review can help others to discover our podcast and experience the hope of the gospel. Now, here's today's teaching from Dr. Keller. Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings, and with two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the uh, seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. This is God's word. Now, we're in a series which I've been calling Daring to Draw Near. And in the evening services, what we've been doing is looking at people who had close encounters with God, direct encounters with the living God. You know, spiritual experience is a big deal now. You can walk into any bookstore and see that. Uh, but when, what we've been doing is we've been looking at the, the historic accounts of people who've really met God face to face. Now, most of them are kind of difficult. How do I say? Not difficult. Well, difficult. Most of the passages we've been looking at are not real well known. They, they tend to be a little bit enigmatic. They tend to be uh, somewhat difficult to read. They're not very well known. This is not the, this is not the case here. And uh, I, I had to make a decision. I had to either say, wow, Isaiah 6. As If you've been around here, you know that I refer to it a lot. I can't help it. You know I've preached on it before. I can't help it. This is a seminal passage. I mean, all of biblical religion is in here. Uh, I mean, <laughs> every verse, no, every phrase, in some cases, every word can be a point or a, to a sermon or a sermon. I mean, it would be, it would be extremely easy. And In fact, it was, it's probably... Uh, it would probably be more responsible to do what than what I am doing would be to go through and say there is so much. All of biblical religion can be broken out of here. It's amazing. And it is a terrific map for Christian experience. It tells you so much about what it means to be a Christian and what it, what it means to really meet God and, and the marks of real Christian experience. Not just what you're supposed to believe as a Christian, how you're supposed to live, but what does it mean to have a Christian experience? What does it mean to actually experience God? Boy, there's nothing like this verse, or this passage. Now, rather than break it all down, what I've just decided to do is give you an overview. 
sort of fly over it. And, and some of you know, you'll see verses, and, you'll say, and when the sermon's over, you'll say, why didn't he talk anything about that? Well, because this is, just a, this is just too rich. I can't get to it all tonight. But what I'd like to do is as I stood back and looked at this, I said, what does this tell me about real experience of God? And I saw, let's see, one, two, three, four, unfortunately, five. There's five things that I'd like to note here, five observations I'd like to make. This tells us about the reality, the diversity, the beauty, the humility, and the festivity of Christian experience. Got that? The reality, the diversity, the beauty, the humility, and the festivity, in order, right through the passage. And unless, unless these, these are characteristics of all Christian experience. Here, first of all, let's just, let's just go over it. We're flying over this like a helicopter. I've been finding this is a good way to do things this year. First of all, the reality. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw. Now, uh, this won't be a long point, I don't think, and this might be kind of basic, but I, I, my, one, of my, one of my old pastors, one of my old mentors who's, who died this year was Jack Miller, and Jack Miller has a great little talk on Isaiah 6. And he says the reason that Isaiah, one of the reasons Isaiah was so absolutely astounded one of the reasons that Isaiah was so absolutely, uh, uh, you know, knocked to the ground by this is that like most any other Israelite, in fact, mo- like almost any religious person, he was going to the temple. Like he'd gone to the temple dozens and dozens and hundreds of times in his life. It was the Sabbath day. He was going up to the temple. And so he walked into the temple, and like almost anybody who goes to the temple, anybody who goes to church, anybody who goes to synagogue, anybody who goes, you know, like anybody else, he walked in, and the very last person in the whole world he expected to actually see was God. <laughs> see, he saw. I mean, he'd always experienced, he'd always, you know, felt the presence of God. He'd always been inspired or very often. But one day he came in and he saw. Now, the Bible continually tells us that Christianity is not simply about uh, rules and regulations and beliefs. It's about tasting and s- that the Lord is good, seeing God, knowing God, just not knowing about him. And the little word saw means Isaiah moved from knowing about God to knowing God this day. Isaiah moved from saying his prayers to praying Isaiah moved from from being a nominal believer to being a real believer. He saw God. It shocked him. Now, what does this mean? Uh, just this. And actually, this if any of you, some of you, we know that a certain percentage of you are come back in the evening and you were in the morning, so some of you came to the morning service. And in the morning service, we were looking at the place where Jesus throws the money changers and the animal sellers out of the temple precincts because he says... My house should be a house of prayer. And he says, because of all the, 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 the cacophony, all the clamor of, of buying and selling and, 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 uh, and offering up the animals, nobody's praying. In other words, it's become mechanical. It's become religious. It's become busy. And nobody's actually meeting God. You're going to temple and you're not seeing God. You're going to church and you're not actually touching God. <clears throat> and I remi- it reminds me of Mary and Martha. And I want to remind you of Mary and Martha. Mary and Martha were two friends of Jesus, and Jesus came to stay with them. 
And right away, Martha says, oh, my goodness, I have to serve Jesus. And so what should she do? You read about this at the end of Luke chapter 10. It's a great little story. And all we know about it is that Martha started going running around, running around their their house, frantic. There was so much to do. Jesus is here. I've got to to go shop. I've got to go. I've got to cook. I've got to clean up. And she was running around. That's Martha. Serving Jesus, of course. Being very busy for Jesus. Doing all these things in Jesus' name. And Mary was sitting right at Jesus' feet, looking up. We're told she sat there and she communed with him. She listened to him. Her face was, was lifted up toward him. She beamed at him and he beamed at her. And at one point, Martha runs by, I guess, the living room, you know, and there's Jesus and Mary in the den sitting there. And she's pretty perturbed. And she looks in and she says, Lord, will you tell my sister to start serving you? And Jesus says, Martha, she is. In fact, he says, Martha, Martha, you are troubled by many things, but Mary has chosen the best part. This is what he's saying. Martha, you've let your religion squeeze out knowing God. You are so busy. You have so much that you're doing, and you are doing everything in my name. But beneath all the religiosity, you're not actually seeing me. You're not actually knowing me. You're not actually feeling me. You're not actually contacting me. And so I need to start right off. In other words, the first point tonight is actually was the last point this morning, but it went by pretty briefly. So even if you were here, I don't mind saying it again. This is saying that the reason Jesus Christ died on the cross, the reason he went to all that agony, was really not so much so that you could run programs. Not so much that you could go to meetings. Not so much that you could do all your religious duties. You know, people without Jesus Christ dying, people have been doing their religious duties and, and, uh, and they have been doing their disciplines and they've been fasting and they've been, uh, you know, and been trying to obey and they've been trying to obey all the rules and they've been trying to help hurting people and they've been going to meetings and they've been doing that for you. you don't, Jesus Christ didn't die for you to do that. You can do that without Jesus Christ dying. The one thing that Jesus Christ died for was so that you could have access to God so that you could see him, so that you could come into his presence and not be consumed. That's the whole point of Jesus' death. Jesus says to Martha, Martha, Mary's doing the one thing that I really came to have with you. Mary sees me, feels me, you know. She knows me. She has access to me. Christianity is an experience. It's not just an experience, but it's not less than that. And I think you have to ask yourself, uh, you might be very proud of how much you know your doctrine. You might know your Bible very well. You might have a great deal of, uh, uh, you might have quite a record of, of ministry experience. You might have been in many, many churches. You, you might really feel kind of good about that. You may look around and say, oh, these other people, they don't have their, their act together biblically. And, and uh, you also may really be a pretty clean living person. And you may have a very spotless record. But you see, so what? Martha. That's Martha stuff. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't do those things. The point is, do you see him? Do you actually know him? How's your prayer life? Are you connecting with him? Is there a tremendous joy that you draw on every day or fairly often that that just leads you out into the rest of the day and enables you to face life? You see, are you... 
is your Christian, your daily Christian behavior the overflow of an already filled cup? Or is it actually a response to an emptiness? Are you doing it to convince yourself that God must like me? Look at how busy I am. Look at all the things I'm doing for him. See, all of your busyness and behavior can be a response to a lack of knowing him. It can be a response to an emptiness, to a lack of experience. Instead of the response to the presence of the experience and to the overflowing, the bubbling of it. The reality of Christian experience. One day Isaiah came to church and he couldn't believe it. He actually saw him. Every single time you sit down to pray, every single time you come to church, you ought to be asking for the same thing. You should be after it. You should be saying, well, I'm here. It's another Sunday. I'm doing my duty. God better be good to me. I'm trying to get into that. I'm trying to do that. I'm trying to get this. I come to church. I'm expecting these things. So you're making worship a means to an end? Come on, Martha. Be merry. Now, um, isn't that what he said? Secondly, now, this is something pretty interesting, and it's really very, very different. I would like to show you one of the things we learn in here is the diversity of Christian experience. We've seen the reality, now the diversity. And, you know, now diversity is an in-word. And so, uh, you know, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a positive word. Everybody likes diversity. But actually, the diversity I'm talking about isn't really at all like the kind of diversity that uh, the word nowadays means. But I, here's what I mean by that. Isaiah's call to ministry, Isaiah's experience, is really, in many ways, extremely different than Jeremiah's. Isaiah comes in, and he gets this amazingly lofty and majestic experience of God. He says, I saw the Lord. Now look, seated on a throne, high and lifted up. And I'm sorry, I, I, some of you may have noticed that as I read this New International Version, I find myself going back to the, uh, the words of the authorized, the King James Version, which are kind of etched in my heart like in stone. I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. This exalted, he's high. See, Isaiah thought of God as really being kind of a buddy. I'll tell you why in a minute. He thought of God in a very familiar way, and what he needed was to see God is so high, and he is so low, and God has everything and needs nothing. And he's nothing and needs everything. And that's the experience he has. But now look, when Jeremiah comes and God meets Jeremiah, which is the very next book over, albeit it's 66 chapters away because Isaiah is a very, very large book. But if you, if you go to the very first chapter of Jeremiah, we see this, the call of Jeremiah. Is it like Isaiah's? Not much, at least not on the surface. It says, And the word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Even before you were born, I set you apart. Ah, sovereign Lord, I say, I do not know how to speak. I am only a child. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a child. You must go to everyone I send you to. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you, and I will rescue you, declares the Lord. And then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said, Now I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Utterly different. Isn't it amazing? Just to read those two. Here's, here is God who actually says very gently, you know, you have too low a view of yourself. 
And, and, and Jeremiah says, oh, I couldn't possibly do all that. And God says, I am near you. And here's Isaiah, who obviously has too high a view of himself. And God does not give any communication of nearness, but only gives a communication of loftiness. And, see, the diversity is very, very important. One of the reasons why, now this is, this is something of a speculation, but I think, I'm not the only one who said this, and I, I, think, I think it makes a great deal of sense. One thing we know about Isaiah, we don't know much, but we know his father was Amos. And you, if in the very first verse of the first chapter of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah, we are told, was his father was Amos. Amos was the brother of the father of Isaiah the king. In other words, Isaiah was a member of the cultural elite. Isaiah was of the royal family. That makes Isaiah very different than most of the other prophets. Most of them tended to be people from the lower classes, nobodies, you know, socially nobody. nobody. Amos, remember what Amos was? Amos was a bruiser of sycamore fruit. That was his job before he was, you know what? Sycamore fruit only ripened when it was hit, which, by the way, tells you a lot about what, why God is doing to you what he's doing right now. But anyway... Uh, it only ripened if it was hit, and sycamore fruit was cheap, and only the poor, you know, uh, bought it, and, uh, and the only people who, you know, harvested it were also poor people, and that was what Amos was. He was a, a, a bruiser of sycamore fruit, and he was called. And most of the prophets were like that, but not Isaiah. And the reason it's pretty interesting to us in New York is there's more Isaiahs around here than any other place I know. Isaiahs are people who go to the right schools. Isaiahs are people from the right families. Isaiahs are people who, who have all the right connections. Isaiahs are, are smarter and thinner and very well-dressed. And, and, uh, and as a result, when they consider the ministry, and probably Isaiah had considered the ministry before this came, probably almost for sure, this is what people would be saying. They would say, well, if, if a key young leader like you, I mean, if, if, if a young man like you would go into the ministry, boy, that would be something. You know, you might really be able to turn this moribund church around. I mean, uh, you know, people would know that, you know, you're somebody and you could really do good. Well, if, if one of your type come and, and see, Isaiah surely was prone to that. And as a result, when God shows up, God is as high as high can be. And Isaiah gets a nosebleed just looking at him. And there is no, there's no, you know, sweetness and light, and I'll be near you, and don't be afraid, and don't worry, and I've known you from the beginning. Absolutely not. I saw the Lord high and lifted up, see? And his train filled the temple. Nothing like that at all. Isaiah got what he needed, and so did Jeremiah. Now listen carefully. It doesn't mean that there isn't something that they all have in common. And if you look very carefully, you will see that Isaiah was lifted up so that Isaiah saw God lifted up and made him feel like nothing so that God could come and show him his mercy. Isaiah didn't think he needed any mercy, so how could he experience it? So he had to be humbled into the ground before he could see the mercy. On the other hand, Jeremiah is very much the opposite. Jeremiah had to be brought into a relationship with God and experience his mercy, okay, before he really was able to see in some ways, the sinfulness of sin. Because, you know, until you really know God as a friend, do you really see how wicked your sin is? See, mercy, uh, to give you a quick example, this is an old illustration, but I haven't used it in a long time, but it's so good. Uh, one minute, I heard a minister say this many, many years ago. He said, he said, listen, if I was at your house 
and uh, you weren't, and a bill came due, and I paid it. And then I called you up and said, guess what? A bill came due, and you were supposed to pay it, but I paid it. What do you think of that? And the answer is you wouldn't know what to think because you have, you, until you know the size of the bill, you don't know how grateful to be. Is that right? Sure. Now, you know, if it's a dollar postage due on a package, you know, the postage due, and you paid it, you'd say, oh, gee, thanks. That's all. But on the other hand, if it was uh, the IRS man who said, you owe $40,000 in back taxes, otherwise we're putting a lien on your property tomorrow, and, it, you know, if your friend paid that bill, that's different. It's, don't you see? You don't know whether to say thank you, whether to get on your knees and kiss the feet. You have no idea. See, you don't have any idea until you know how big the debt is, you have no idea how great the mercy is. They go together. Your sense of your need and your debt increases the sense of his grace, and they both are there, but the order depends on your situation. And it is very, very dangerous for us to take the way we found God and, and, and look and see the order and the shape of our experience and then impose it on anybody else and then say, well, you're not coming the way I came. See, it's very, very easy for some of us to have been just devastated early on with this tremendous sense of our sinfulness and our wickedness. And you talk to somebody else who's just recently come to Christ and, and you say, well, tell me about it. And they, and they don't tell you anything like what you went through and you start to say, I don't know if this person's a real Christian. Be careful. There have never been stronger calls for justice than those we have heard in recent years. What does the Bible have to say about it, and how does God's Word help bring about justice? In Tim Keller's book, Generous Justice, you'll discover that the Bible gives us a rich and complex understanding of what justice is and what it means to live it out. The book provides a biblical framework for justice, one that calls every Christian to a life of generous justice, fueled by grace. Generous Justice is our thank you for your gift to help Gospel and Life share the hope of the gospel with people all over the world. So request your copy today at gospelandlife.com slash give. That's gospelandlife.com slash give. Now, here's Tim Keller with the remainder of today's teaching. In fact, you want to know something very interesting? Just, uh, well, I'll tell you anyway, because it's pretty interesting. Uh, I've already mentioned him. I, I, there's two guys that I, I, I've listened a lot to. I've listened to their tapes. I knew one of them personally, one I didn't. Uh, and I've gotten a lot from them as a preacher. They're both very good preachers in their own way and in a very different way. One was Jack Miller. One was David Martin Lloyd-Jones. Jack Miller went over to London three or four years ago and preached uh, a conference to a bunch of guys who had sat under David Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a great British preacher in London in the middle part of the 20th century. He's a great man, a great orator, and Jack Miller is a minister here in America. Jack Miller went to preach to those guys, and Jack Miller tells lots and lots of stories about himself, lots of them. He's always talking about himself, and this happened to me, and that happened to me. And at the end of one of the talks, some older man got up and blasted Jack and said, I sat for 30 years under the sermons of the doctor, and he was a great man of God, and he never, ever, 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 in all of his sermons, ever told a story about himself never referred to himself ever, and he considered that proud. Well, you see, that was very wrong and very short-sighted because Lloyd-Jones wasn't Isaiah. Lloyd-Jones, before he went into the ministry, had risen to the top of the medical profession back in the 1920s in Britain. He really was, you know, in a very class-conscious place like Britain in those days. He had made the top, and one day he saw a man who was also at the top, about 10 or 20 years down the road from him, 
Uh, and a, a woman he loved died, and that, young, that man walked in and sat down in front of a fire and stared at the fire for two hours and said nothing. And Lloyd-Jones suddenly realized that if you have everything the world can possibly give you, and he did, it doesn't mean you can face the realities of life. He was deeply troubled, he was deeply humbled, and he was an Isaiah, and he came to faith in Christ, and he was absolutely humbled. And as a result, you never, ever, ever see him talking about himself. But you see, there's other kinds of people that actually need the mercy of God to even begin to talk about themselves. Some of us need God's mercy to open our mouths, and others of us need God's holiness to finally shut up. And it depends. And if you read through the book of Isaiah, you will see no references to himself anywhere. None. And if you read through the book of Jeremiah, you'll see constant references to himself. We have to be very careful, the diversity of Christian experience. I told you this is interesting. Unfortunately, that's only the second point. All right. But uh, uh, let, let me be more brief, but let me hit the rest. The third thing we learn here, not only about the reality of Christian experience and the diversity, but the beauty now. Here's what I mean. What are these seraphs doing? Uh, They have six wings, and with two they cover their feet, and with two they cover their eyes, and with two that they are flying. And what does it mean? Well, the commentators, first of all, tell us that the two covering their feet is actually uh, an act of, uh, of modesty. To cover your feet was a way of saying, I'm not worthy. And the two on their back showed that they were ready to do the Lord's bidding quickly. They were coiled to spring. They were ready to swiftly do whatever he wanted. The two over their face meant that they were having trouble looking at the brilliance of the holiness of God. And the question that immediately comes up is, how holy must this God be if the angels can't look directly at him any more than you and I can look at the sun? What is the holiness of God? It's all of his moral excellencies, you know, balled up into one. It's, 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 his, it's his incredible generosity, but not just that. It's his unbelievable justice, but not just that. It's his bottomless grace, but it's not just that. It's his total trustworthiness, but it's not just that. It's all of that put together like a prism, you know. You know, you can see the spectrum of light, but when it all comes together, it's brilliant white, see. And that's what they saw, and yet they couldn't see it. They couldn't bear to look at it. And yet, what are they, why are they trying? <laughs> because they love it. Because they're praising it. What do you, when they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, heaven and earth are full of thy glory, hosanna in the highest. They can't stand to look at it directly. I mean, it almost hurts to do it, but they can't not look at it because they love it. And this is one of the great marks of Christian experience. Jonathan Edwards wrote a book. He wrote many books, you say, I know. But let me tell you about one that's very important. It's a hard book to read, but a very important book. It's called The Religious Affections. And it's about, uh, it was Edwards' effort to try to write down a series of characteristics that he thought distinguished real Christian experience from counterfeit. And it's an extremely interesting book, but the, uh, the only one I'll bring up right now is the third of the, of the 12 distinguishing marks was that only a real Christian who has experienced the grace of God will have this as part of their experience, and that is they will be attracted and they will love the beauty of God's holiness. And here's his reasoning, and this actually touches on the morning sermon too in some ways. Sorry about that, but I can't help it. Unfortunately, both of these sermons happened in the temple. 
And so you know, it was difficult for me not to you know, cross-pollinate. <clears throat> Illustration I use this morning, I'll say right now. If somebody loved you, you thought. And when they suddenly, they were, were going to marry you, and uh, suddenly, just not too long before the marriage, it turns out that you lost all the money that you had in the stock market. You just all, is all gone. And you turn to your loved one, you turn to your spouse-to-be, and you say, oh, I need your consolation today. I'm really discouraged. I just lost everything I have in the stock market. And what if suddenly this person says, I think the wedding's off? Why? Well, uh, you know, you lost all your money. Uh, you know, uh, you know, things are going to be different now. And you, know, you would be outraged and you would, be, you would feel violated because you would know this person doesn't love me for who I am. This person loved the money more than me. This person was using me. Now, Edward says, how do you know if somebody loves God? You can't know it if they're fascinated and they're praising his power. Why? Because if you're using God, the power is very attractive. Power is like money in the bank. I certainly would love to have a powerful God. I would certainly want to be in with a powerful God. That God's power could be used for me. In other words, the power of God can benefit you. The power of God, therefore, is something you could be very excited about and not love him at all. And he also says, <clears throat> what about the wisdom of God? Well, you see, if you were just using God, you could still be very excited about the wisdom of God. You could say, ah, the wisdom. I want a God like that who knows everything. And, uh, and boy, that, that will really come in handy for me. You see, you could, just be, you could just be marrying God for his money and be excited about the power. You could just be marrying God for his money and be excited about wisdom. In fact, let's go further. You could be very excited. <clears throat> you could be marrying God for his money and be very excited about the idea of forgiveness. Oh, yes. Now, this is pretty interesting. Edward says, a person who's just very, very excited about God's grace... He says, well, that's very important. Boy, it's important. But he says, you know, a person who's just marrying God for his money, who doesn't love God, who's just using God, just finding a way <clears throat> to make use of God, could be very excited about a God of forgiveness. But here's the one thing. He says, nobody, nobody but a real Christian could ever love God for his holiness because the holiness of God is of no benefit the holiness of God is a terrible threat unless you know that you are redeemed and adopted through Jesus Christ. And the holiness of God is only attractive if you finally love God for just the beauty of who he is. To look at his perfections, to look at his excellence, to look at his moral beauty and perfection, and to be attracted by that. That is the mark of the seraphs, and that is the mark of real experience of God. Finally, if, you are, if, if you're attracted to the holiness of God, if reflecting on that amazes you and deeply, uh, and you find it deeply enjoyable and deeply comforting, and, and you find your heart going out to it, the holiness of God, only, he says, a real Christian, only an angel. You say, the angels are like that. Because, you see, they say, I see who he is for who he is. Now, there's a whole lot of other marks, by the way. Edward says, if you love him for who he is, then you will be unconditional in your obedience. If God says, I want you to stop doing that, I know that you want it so badly, but I say you should stop doing it, you do it immediately, right? There would never be any condition on your obedience because the reason you obey God is to please him out of the joy of who he is. But if a person says, I served God 
and I didn't get into the grad school I wanted. I serve God, and I'm not married yet. I serve God, and all these things have gone wrong in my life. What good is God? The answer is you don't know God at all. You never did. Because you know what you're saying? You're saying to God, oh, I guess the wedding's off. I mean, he should be as outraged as you would be. But you see, the, the, the most important and the easiest to understand sign that you really have met the real God and you really love God for who he is is you are, you're attracted by his holiness. And you know what? The Bible says in some astonishing ways that if you gaze at the holiness of God and love it, and if you, just, if you meditate on him and say, I love that, you will become like that. Don't forget... Uh, Sarah Smith of Golders Green in The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. It's just a novel, but it tells us about a lady named Sarah Smith who in real life was very ugly, kind of unhappy. Uh, I mean, un, you know, un, uh, uninteresting, unlovely to look at. But when she gets to heaven in The Great Divorce, here's what it says about her. It says, The beauty of the woman's soul was so filled with the beauty of holiness that she was unbearably beautiful. Few men even on earth says the narrator, looked on her without becoming in a certain fashion her lovers, but it was the kind of love that made them not less true, but more true to their own wives. I don't even remember she were wearing clothes, for the almost visible penumbra of her courtesy and joy produced in my mind a great and shining train that followed her across the happy grass. Now, why am I reading that? When I read that, I get a glimpse of what it means to be holy, and it's beautiful. And when, if you find your heart going out to that, like the seraphs do, I can't even look at it, and yet I can't not look at it, you know that you've been touched by the grace of God and that you're finally communing with the real God. One last thing. And somebody's going to say, hey, I wrote these down. What do you mean last thing? I said reality, diversity, beauty, humility. i got to skip it. Sorry. We've tried to talk about it. The festivity. At the very end, You've got this amazing thing. It says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. Now, we see him falling down. And boy, don't you, I wish, and some of you know there's a lot to say about this, where he says, Woe is me, I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He suddenly sees his sin because he sees God. He doesn't know himself till he sees God. And so he's down the dumps, but from the altar, from the place of sacrifice, from the sacrifice, a coal touches his lips. And because of forgiveness, he is turned into someone who will do anything. Do you know what the job description is? Actually, I didn't have it printed in here, but it's pretty interesting. It says, you see, and then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. And right after that, God says, well, wait a minute. Let me give you your job description. And he comes up with one of the most interesting job descriptions in history. It says, here am I, send me. And then the Lord said, go and tell this people, be hearing but never understand, be seeing but never perceive. Let the hearts of this people be callous, let their ears be dull, let them close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And then I said, well, how long will this last, O Lord? And he says, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitants, until the houses are left deserted, till the fields are ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away, and the land is utterly forsaken. 
But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will grow again in the land. What he says is, Isaiah, I want you to go someplace, and I want you to preach, but I want you to realize that for the rest of your life, virtually no one will ever listen to you. There will be great, there'll be great fruit eventually. Eventually, your words will be read all around the world. Eventually, the, uh, the holy seed that you plant will come up. But in your whole lifetime, no. All they'll ever do is they'll be mad at you, they'll, they'll hunt you down, they'll never listen to you. Never. Here am I. Send me. What's going on there? He saw what you and I need to see too. When he went in, he saw the Lord on the throne. It was the year the King Isaiah died. What does that mean? Israel was up in an uproar because there was no king. In fact, if I get, had a little bit of ch- chance to tell you, that, that, was the, that was the very beginning of all terrible troubles. Assyria was rising up, and uh, it was a great empire. and was going to come down on Israel pretty soon, and everybody was all upset. Isaiah comes in, and he sees the Lord on the throne. The throne is not empty. He sees the Lord in charge. Things are not in trouble. And the reason he's so excited, and he's not anxious anymore, is he's seen the Lord. Now, why are you anxious? Why are you upset? I read a little article once in a self-help magazine that said, now, if you want to overcome worry, put a rubber band around your wrist. And whenever you find yourself worrying, grab it and pull it out and let it snap back and say to yourself, worrying doesn't solve anything. (laughs) Now, here's what I suggest to you. You don't need a rubber band. You need to see the Lord of hosts high and lifted up and seated on the throne. The one who is high and lifted up, which means he's utterly in control, but who loves me and who has put his coal on my lips and has received me and has put his arms around me is on the throne of the universe. If you know that, you don't care about whether people will do this or that. You don't care whether you'll be success or failure. You don't care. He's on the throne. That's what you need to see. You don't need a rubber band. You don't need a technique. You need to see the Lord high and lifted up. Come to the altar. Ask to see him. And that will make you able to to get anything, to do anything. This is Christian experience. Let's pray. Our Lord, help us to come to the temple. And if we come in and we see the Lord and we experience you, we will leave bold, alive, spiritually awake, joyful, courageous, pure, strong, deep, full, and wide open. And that's what we ask. Nothing less. Because that's what you offer. Nothing less. And it would really be an insult for us to seek less. And so we ask that you would help us to seek and that we would find it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's teaching from Dr. Keller. We pray you were encouraged by it. To find more gospel-centered resources like today's teaching, you can sign up for email updates at gospelandlife.com. That's gospelandlife.com. This month's sermons were recorded in 1996 and 2009. The sermons and talks you hear on the Gospel and Life podcast were preached from 1989 to 2017, while Dr. Keller was senior pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian Church.